Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for being with us here today as we wrap up our sermon series, Skeptical Faith. Uh, Before we jump in, just two quick things. Uh, Number one, I got to tell you that my family and I really missed you guys. Uh, We were away for two Sundays and it made us realize how much we love our church. Uh, So thanks for being the kind of church that's missable. Um, Number two, uh, as I was listening to Pastor Michael before talk about like quarks and quantum physics and gravity, I realized like he should be preaching this sermon, shouldn't he? I I think he could, I didn't understand like half of what he said. And uh, <laughs> it just made me realize he has such a deep knowledge. So I want to put the disclaimer out. If you have any questions about God and science afterwards, even though I'm preaching this sermon, just go to him. All right, so I'll, I'll send you in his direction. He probably has some better answers. I'm happy that you're joining us here today, though, because a lot of people do have a lot of honest questions about faith and the sciences. Like the young woman six months ago who emailed me, who grew up in a Christian home, and attended a Christian church and wanted to be a chemist for her career. In her email, she told me about this tension she felt, and she put it this way. Pastor Mike, how can I continue to believe in creation, what I was taught as a kid, when every day in the classroom I'm learning the evidence and data that directly contradicts it? She admitted that she kind of felt stuck between the scientific and the spiritual. And she wasn't quite sure where to go. She said many of the people in the scientific field that she knew, her professors and her classmates, didn't even want to think about God or consider God. They didn't even think that God or supernatural causes were a possibility that that conversation was over before it started. But some of the Christian people that she talked to really didn't want to get into the science either. It made them nervous, the direction that it could go in. They didn't have the knowledge that she had. They didn't have uh, a deep understanding, nor did they want to understand it because they were afraid of where that conversation might lead. And so she reached out to me and asked, what should I do? Do I have to give up my faith to pursue my career in chemistry? Do I have to give up chemistry to hold on to my Jesus? And she felt the tension. She felt stuck. And I have a hunch as I look out at all of you Uh, tonight that she's not the only one that's felt that way. You don't have to have a chemistry major to feel the tension in contemporary culture between the Bible and the sciences. For some of you, maybe that happened when you took a trip to a museum as a kid or as a chaperone and you're reading explanation after explanation of a world, of a history, and of a universe that has no place and really no need for God. Or maybe it's your kid who doesn't want to come to church anymore because he says he cares about facts and he cares about science. And a mom and dad who honestly believe in a Garden of Eden and a talking snake and an Adam and Eve and a God who spoke and the world existed and a guy who marched animals two by two into a big boat, it just doesn't seem anywhere close to true. Or maybe your struggles with when you're sitting with your boyfriend or your roommate watching something on Netflix. And here's this really compelling argument to explain a universe that really doesn't require God. A universe that's been tested and laboratory approved. In so many different ways, we can feel that tension as if there are only two options. You can either engage your brain and use your head, look at the data and base your beliefs on objective facts. Or you can shut off your brain and follow your hearts and trust in subjective spiritual things that no one can see or prove so many of us feel stuck. And that's why I'm really glad that you're here today. 
Because today I want to dive into the deep end of the pool like I did with that young woman when we met for coffee. And I want to be upfront with you, just like I was with her, that my education isn't deep in the sciences. Uh, I studied theology for my education, not chemistry or, or physics or astronomy. So I had to direct her to Christians who had PhDs in those fields who found a way to hold on to their faith at the same time having a deep knowledge in the science. What I did share with her, though, is what I want to share with you today. And it's a couple of things that I really want you to consider and think about and put in your back pocket when you feel pulled away from Jesus and the Bible because of a scientific theory. Um, these five things aren't going to get into the nitty-gritty details of creation and evolution. We're not going to wrestle with the Big Bang and the age of the earth with Adam and Eve and DNA ancestry. Those are for another time and place. Today, instead, I just want to give you five big ideas that I hope give you a lot of confidence as a Christian, that you don't have to let go of the scriptures or your Savior as you look at the scientific world and advances that we see in our world today. So you can see in your program the five things I'm going to teach you. I want you to grab your pen because we're going to dive into the first one. Here's the first thing I want you to remember. God likes science. <laughs> if God is a father who had a family minivan, the bumper sticker on the back of that van could say, I heart science. If a teenage Jesus in his Nazareth bedroom had a poster on his wall, that poster might have been the periodic table of elements because God likes science. Science, the word itself, actually comes from a Latin word, scientia or scientia, which literally means knowledge. And since God wants us to have knowledge, he likes science. This passage tells us why from the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul says, What may be known about God is plain to them, to people, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So Paul talks about the struggle. God is invisible, right? He's supernatural. He's beyond the natural world. You can't see him. You can't like grasp in a laboratory his creativity, his wisdom, his intelligence, or his kindness. So what did God do? He wanted to be known. He wanted to be scienced. So the passage says he created. He made data. He spoke and created things that we could see and touch and taste and test. And the more we do, the deeper we get into the sciences, the more we actually know about God, about his bigness, about the size of his intelligence, about his wisdom, his creativity, and his kindness to humankind. It turns out that diving deep into the sciences doesn't have to pull a person away from God, but can actually make them appreciate God even more. It's kind of like what I learned from this book. I was at the airport a couple months ago and I needed something to read. So I picked up this, a massive biography on Leonardo da Vinci. Anyone here read it yet? I think I picked it up from the airport because in the middle, there's a whole bunch of pictures. And I like pictures. <laughs> but I found out what's even better than all the pictures are the words that are next to them. I found out when I would read, for example, this chapter on the Last Supper, instead of just seeing da Vinci's masterwork and staring at it like at a museum, I could read all the details, all the artistry, all the method that went into this massive and important work of art. And I learned that the more I understood about the method, the more I came to appreciate the man who made it. 
And it's kind of the same with God. You can stare at a human body or a night sky, but it's not until you really dig into it, until you really grasp and understand it, that you come to appreciate and love the God who made it. So when you go into nursing, and you don't just believe that, you know, babies are flown in by storks, but you know how one sperm and one egg can create this little peanut that becomes a grapefruit that turns into a watermelon that becomes this adorable little child that, you know, uncles put in cute little onesies. <laughs> like when you grasp how the human body works, how the female body changes, the whole reproductive process, it is so stunning and deep and beautiful that you come to appreciate God in a way that a toddler simply couldn't. Or when you go into engineering or architecture and you realize how buildings are built, why scientifically this roof isn't collapsing on my head right now, when you realize how gravity and angles and structures and densities all fit together that make the cathedrals of planet Earth possible, when you dig into that kind of science, you don't appreciate God less, but even more. Whatever field you go into, whether it's art or it's medicine, whether it's theology or whether it's chemistry, the more you dig into the details, the more you come to appreciate the God, the creator who made it. See, God likes science. And I think that's why so many scientists over the years have liked God. You might know some of the greatest scientists in human history have been followers of Jesus. Years and, and generations ago, they had a passionate connection to the church and they also made massive discoveries that we celebrate even today. But it's not just in like a pre-lab evolution era that people have followed Jesus. Author Baruch Shalev, in his study of Nobel um, Prize laureates, found this out, that 73% of chemistry winners, 65% of physics winners, and 62% of medicine winners of the Nobel Prize were... Christians. Not atheists, not this book is dumb. People who opened this book and had a connection to Jesus were some of the most scholarly people in their fields, recognized worldwide, globally for their advances in the sciences. So do you have to pick between faith and science? The answer of Jesus would be no. Pursue science with a passionate heart. And the more you learn about it, the more you might come to praise him. So that's the first thing I want in your back pocket. Uh, grab your pen because here's the second. The second thing I want you to know is that everyone has faith. I want you to know that because there are many voices today that would imply something else. There are many people that would say, you know, over here are the Christians who have faith. They can't see God, they can't see Jesus or forgiveness or eternal life, so they just grab their Bibles and they just believe. It's spiritual, it's subjective, nobody can prove it, they're just people of faith. And then over here are the scientists who are not people of faith, but people of facts. Stuff that's been tested and retested. Stuff that has peer-reviewed research. Like, that's how you become a scientist. So there's faith people, there's facts people, there's spiritual Christian people, and then there's scientifically-minded people. But what I want to tell you today, actually, is that everyone has faith. From the most Bible-thumping, fundamentalist, evangelical, to the most passionate, militant, atheist, evolutionist, all of them have faith. Everyone has stuff that they believe, even though they can't see it just yet. And I'll admit that's true for me as a Christian. 
I believe that God the Father made the heavens and the earth, but I didn't see my Father make the heavens and the earth. I, I trust it. Now, the Bible even says so much in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. What? Why do I confess the Apostles' Creed that I believe in a creator? Well, the truth is, I didn't see it. I didn't catch a YouTube clip. I just trust. But that doesn't mean I'm the only one with faith. Do any of you know the odds that life can exist on earth? That, you know, earth is placed just right from the sun in the universe, that the moon happens to be right here, the gravitational pull, nuclear forces and constants. Do you know what the odds are that that would just happen? Some people call this the fine-tuning argument, if you've heard of it. Like, our, our planet is like this massive soundboard, and all these things are tuned just right so that you can exist. And the odds of it just happening are almost impossible. The last time I, I checked into it with a non-Christian statistician, they said the odds that a human being can exist on a planet like Earth are like you winning the Powerball lottery, not once and not twice, but 342 million times. Those are the insane odds that our planet would happen to be this close to the sun and not this close so we melt and not this close so we freeze. Those are the odds that the gravitational pull is just enough to pull oxygen down to the surface of the earth so you can breathe, but not so strong that toxic gases are pulled into your lungs as well. All those things so finely tuned and the data proves it. So is the Christian just flying by blind faith when we believe there is a God who created the universe? Oh, not at all. So how does the atheist explain the universe? Now, the answer is faith. They believe that somehow we're going to find something that's going to fill in the gaps and make it make a little more sense. They really believe that they're not betting their eternal soul on the fact that God doesn't exist. They have data that they can prove and they have a whole bunch that they can't. They have faith. So never get sucked into this belief that, you know, here are the naive, gullible, spiritual people and here are the smart, thinking, rational, scientific people. It's not true. Everyone engages head and heart. Every human being has faith. Now, some people would say, well, wait, Pastor Mike, you're, you're forgetting about that scientific theory called the multiverse. You ever heard of that before? If you'd ask a bunch of atheists, like, how do you explain the odds that we're actually here if there is no God? They would say this. This is the leading theory currently, as far as I'm aware. They'd say, you're right. Like, the odds that there is life in our universe are almost impossible. But what if we're not the only universe? What if there are two or three or millions of universes and we just happen to be in the one where life can exist? But do you know what that is? Faith. <laughs> can we see that? Test that? Prove that? It's pretty convenient for the arguments. I heard a couple of pastors use this analogy. Imagine we're sitting in uh, one of those old saloons in the Old West and there's a couple of old kind of rusty cowboys here with their pistols in their pockets and they're playing a game of poker. And this new guy walks through the swinging double doors and he sits down to play poker with these other cowboys and they're pushing all their chips into the middle. There's a ton in the pot. And what does the new cowboy lay down? A royal flush. The odds of getting a royal flush? One in 649,470. 
and the gunslingers squint at the new guy. So they deal again. More chips are put into the middle. The, the pot grows big. And what does the new guy lay down for a second time? A royal flush. Odds, one in 649,470. So they start to reach for their guns and cock the triggers back and they deal another hand. All the chips go into the middle. Everyone's got all their money. And what does he do for a third time in a row? He lays down a royal flush. And you know, by this point, the gunslingers pulled their guns and the new guy lifts up his hands and he says, wait, wait, wait. Guys, I know this seems impossible, but what if we just happen to live in the one universe out of the many, many universes <laughs> where the guy who walks into the bar gets a royal flush three times in a row? What do you think those cowboys would do? <laughs> like you wouldn't lose a hundred bucks over odds that much. And I would encourage you to not bet your eternity either. Faith and facts. The Christian and the scientist both have them. And both of us believe that in the end, our theory will be right. And our faith will be revealed as fact. So that's point number two I want you to know. Here's point number three. It's a little more philosophical. Only a universe with a God, only a spiritual realm can explain evil. If you believe that there is good and there is evil, that some stuff, regardless of culture or family or time in history, is always bad, then you must have a God. Let me prove it to you. Um, Did you hear about that court case where um, the cat was put on trial for murdering the mouse. Yeah, he was an animal. He like prowled up while this poor little thing, mother of 13, by the way, was just trying to get its dinner. And it grabbed it, didn't even kill it. It tortured it and messed with it for a while. And it turns out that the cat's people have been trying to eliminate the mouse's people for generations. You see that case? So why do we have cases like that for humans? If a human kidnaps, tortures, abuses, kills another human, why do we demand justice? Why do we call that evil? The theory of evolution says that it's just survival of the fittest. That the goal of evolution is to weed out the weak and let the strongest survive. That we need to protect the best and strongest genes from generation to generation. And if that is true, then why was the Holocaust evil? Why weren't we just eliminating the weak who couldn't fight to defend themselves? Why don't we accept the law of the jungle in our homes, our schools, our churches, our country, and our planet? Now, the answer for me is actually easy. God. Racism and abuse and the Holocaust were absolutely evil no matter what Hitler, the German people, or culture at that time thought. Because of God. Because there is an authority outside of us that labels right and wrong. You should do certain things and you should not do other things. And that's true always because of God. But if you don't have God, how do you explain it? Why shouldn't I kick your little kid in the face? Because you don't want me to? What if I want to? I shouldn't abuse my wife at home. Oh, you think I shouldn't? What if I think I should? You say, well, Pastor Mike, it's just wrong. Says who? When the polls in America used to say that black people had smaller brains than white people, did that make it right? So what made it wrong? 
God. Without a God, there is no right or wrong. Without a God, you can't intellectually and honestly use the word should. If you want morals, if you want absolutes, if you want something that transcends human behavior, you need God. That was the argument the Apostle Paul made in the book of Romans. He said when Gentiles, those are like non-Jewish people, who do not have the law, they don't have a Bible, do by nature things required by the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. Why is there this thing in our hearts that says you should and you shouldn't? This is right and this is wrong. The answer is God. He wrote his very law on our conscience, the requirements of the law on our hearts. And for that to be true, you need more than just a lab. You need the law of God. Morality totally depends. Justice is completely dependent on the existence of a higher power, on the existence of God. So if you want to be purely scientific, then you have to say the Holocaust is up for debate. That racism, well, we'll see how it turns out for evolution. But if you want to say there's good and there's evil, then you have to rely on God. Point number four is connected to that. Just like only God explains evil, I would contend that only God explains meaning. This deep desire in the human heart for meaning and for purpose, it can only come from God. Have you ever heard about um, that little chihuahua that that Hollywood actress was carrying around who had to go to the counselor because he felt so depressed that he wasn't making a difference in the world? No, you didn't. <laughs> Why not? Because all animals care about is sex, supper, and safety. You give an animal safety and food and a lot of sex, and it's all good. No counselor required. So why doesn't the same thing work for humans? Mosquitoes don't change college majors. Uh, puppies don't read the purpose-driven life. Your cat has never cried out, but what does the universe mean? <laughs> They're just happy to survive, but you're not. So why not? And the answer is God. Because you are not just another animal in the long line. You are a person that's been created by God with a deep hole in your heart searching for meaning. I love how King Solomon said it in Ecclesiastes 3. He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has also set eternity in the human heart. There's something in the human heart that does not exist in the animal heart and it's a deep desire to matter. When we don't matter in life, when, when people age and they're sitting in the nursing home and they've lost their purpose, they often lose their desire to live because we are created with eternity in our heart. And I want to tell you that until you meet the eternal God, that hole will always exist in your heart. You could have better supper, live in a safer neighborhood, and have more sex, but without God, it will not satisfy. And the celebrities prove it. And back when King Solomon wrote these words about 1000 BC, he could not have fathomed what celebrities enjoy today. Air conditioning, constant entertainment, the things we see on our screens. Almost all of us live today at a higher standard than old King Solomon did in his palace in Jerusalem. 
And yet, despite all the advances in science and technology, what hasn't changed? The difficulty of being satisfied. 2,000 years ago, there was this old Latin poet named Horace, and he wrote these words. How comes it to pass that no one lives satisfied with his condition? He looked around and he said, why isn't anyone satisfied with life? And I wonder what he would say today. The Foo Fighters, in one of my favorite songs that they play, any Foo Fighter fans here today? Yeah. Holy cow, nice hands. Very impressive. They once said this, nothing satisfies, but I'm getting close. (laughs) But they're not. Ellen DeGeneres is one of the most popular celebrities of our time, and she recently admitted that she needs an approval patch. And if every day she doesn't get her daily dose of approval from people, she spirals down mentally. Jim Carrey once said, I wish that everyone in America could be rich and famous so they would realize it doesn't work. Tom Brady lives in mansions, has a beautiful Brazilian supermodel wife, and makes more money than all of us combined. And he once said in an interview, there has to be more than this. Dogs don't say that. So why do we? God. Because we're not just animals to be lab tested. We are souls created in his image. Which actually is amazing for you. Did you know that you, 17-year-old you, changing jobs you, working third shift you, figuring life out you, battling anxiety you, do you know that you can find something that the world celebrities haven't? God. He set eternity in your heart. And through Jesus, you can live in the presence of the eternal God. You can receive an eternal love, have an eternal friend in Jesus, be eternally accepted and approved of. You can find what people think they're going to find through a thousand other paths, deep and lasting Happiness. Because there's a God-shaped hole in your heart that only he can fill. I want you to remember that God likes science. That everyone has faith. That only God can explain the existence of absolute evil and good. Only God can explain your deep desire for purpose and meaning. Which brings us to my last point for today. Before I have you fill in this blank, I want to tell you it's the least logical and scientific of what I'm going to say today. It's totally biased as a Bible-believing Christian, but I want to tell you anyway, and here's what it is. I want you to know that Jesus loved Genesis. For many people, the real struggle between science and faith happens in that very first part of the Bible, Genesis. The very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Really? And on the sixth day, he rested from all the work that he had done as he created the universe in, in six days. Wait, there was a guy named, you believe some bearded dude marched the giraffes and the elephants two by two into a big boat that he made and then a flood eliminated all people. You believe that? Well, you believe a snake talked to people and that's why we died today. Come on. And my answer to that is, well, actually I do. I believe that because Jesus believed that. Read through the Gospels about Jesus and you would find that he talked about Noah as an actual person. 
He believed that in the beginning, Adam and Eve were married as actual people. This wasn't a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It was in the beginning. Here's what God did. And here's what God said. Which begs the question, well, why would you believe Jesus? Why would you take his view of Genesis? Why in a modern scientific age would you side with Jesus no matter what the scientists or Nobel Peace Prize winners say and what the theories suggest? And here's where I could go really scientific and logical with you. I, I could try to convince you that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most logical explanation for what happened to start Christianity. There are whole books on this uh, that I've read. You should read them too. Making a historical case for the risen Jesus. What happened 2,000 years ago to turn the world upside down? But today I'm not going to go there. Because <laughs> I want to be a little less logical. And I want to make this last point much more personal. I think the reason that you should hold on to Jesus and his view of Genesis is because of love. Because Jesus, in the most illogical, unscientific act in human history, loved us when we didn't deserve it. When he knew everything about us, all of our secrets and all of our shameful sins, he still loved us. When he in heaven heard our confession that we did it and we're sorry and then we did it again and now we're really sorry and now it's the thousandth time and God, we're still sorry. He knew all of it and he still loved us. Instead of believing in karma, Jesus taught compassion. Instead of giving us a second chance, instead he gave us unconditional grace and forgiveness. And a Jesus who would treat you like that deserves to be trusted. I still can't wrap the logical part of my mind around it. I, I get mad at myself when I think about my sins, but God, through Jesus, isn't mad at me. God says he knows everything. The number of cells in your body, the number of stars in the universe, but do you know the one thing he says he doesn't think at all about? Your sins. Jeremiah 31, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The accountant in my heart doesn't get why God wouldn't count all that stuff against us, but he does. And if you're not a Christian, I get why this doesn't make sense. But if you are and you stand in front of the cross and you see a Jesus who takes all of your regrets and all of your shame and promises you this rock of unconditional love, you start to trust him. You start to believe in things that you can't see because Jesus said, and he's been so good to me, why would he deceive me now? It is the blood of Jesus and the grace of Jesus that doesn't make sense to our senses, but we hold on to it in faith. And because of his love, we Christians refuse to let him go. So when you're struggling, when you read the article, when you see the show, when you're at the museum, when you have the conversation that leaves you shaken in your faith, I don't want you to ignore the data, but first, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand in front of a cross. And think deeply about the Jesus who historically, in time and space, died there for you 2,000 years ago. And I want you to think, if God would do that for you, why wouldn't he tell you the truth in his word? That one makes sense. But grace and peace through Jesus, it does. So put those five things together. And I think you have five strong arguments to hold on to the Bible, to hold on to Christianity, even in a passionately scientific age. 
You could join Buzz if you do. Back in 1969, Buzz Aldrin and his friends stepped onto the moon for the first time. Did you hear these stories? They got into a rocket, I wrote this down, that was 102,907 pounds. On board, they had 5.6 million pounds of propellant that blasted them 25,000 miles an hour into space and four days later, they landed on the moon. But before he took a step on its surface, before one of the greatest crowning achievements of scientific advancement, do you know what Buzz Aldrin did? He took out bread and he took out wine and he worshiped Jesus. He opened his Bible and he read the words of his Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm the vine and you're the branches. This gifted scientific man. He joined the astronauts earlier from Apollo 8 who when they first saw the earth from the perspective of space, they read to the American public, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And their examples prove to us that we don't have to live with this tension. You can be deeply scientific, so scientific, you're the man they put on the moon. And so spiritual that when you get there, you quote the words of Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Father in heaven, I I think about the young faces in church today. Uh, I think about the lectures that they'll hear, the professors that they'll meet, the people they'll date, and those who will try to make them question the simple truth of your love and your creation. I pray that you would protect them with your grace and with your spirit. I pray that they would not be gullible and naive, but would think deeply about the things that we shared today, that they would not let you go quickly. And we pray they would not let you go at all. God, we know that there are many friends, roommates, and neighbors who aren't interested in coming to this church because they think we don't care deeply enough about the data. Make us intelligent, thoughtful, wise Christians. Give us powers of persuasion and a humility to to dig deep into the data, to expose its weaknesses and to find its strengths. And through real, meaningful, honest discussion, to lead people to hear the good news that can change their hearts and their lives. I thank you, God, for creating so much evidence. I thank you, Jesus, for making the resurrection of the dead historical. I thank you how you fine-tune the universe, Heavenly Father, that we don't have to feel dumb as we follow Jesus. Instead, we can be deeply scientific and spiritual at the same time. I pray this all passionately, Jesus, in your powerful name. Amen.